it helps me remember that nothing is as it is. You know, if you're trying to work with women or anybody in a marginalized community, um, that you have to always think differently. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. According to the World Bank, more than 1.3 billion women don't have access to a bank account. That makes saving money and obtaining credit rather difficult. Women are left both financially insecure and vulnerable to crime. They struggle to manage expenses and plan for the future. As a result, upward mobility and the promise of a better life elude them. Financial exclusion is a key reason why more women than men live in poverty worldwide. Efforts to broaden women's access to financial tools and resources have proliferated over the past 50 years. In the 1970s, small loan microfinance schemes provided an important foundation for women eager to start a business. More recently, mobile phones and mobile money applications have radically transformed women's access to financial services. Today's guest has spent the past 20 years on the front lines of developing and implementing financial solutions for women. I'm Shamina. I'm Elmira. Elmira, that's so nice to meet you. Sorry. Shamina Singh is the founder and president of the Center for Inclusive Growth, the philanthropic hub of MasterCard. She also serves as the executive vice president of corporate sustainability. Shamina, regular listeners will know that we've devoted several episodes to understanding the gender gap across a range of issues whether it's from access to healthcare or to opportunities in sports. Today, I want to continue that conversation by focusing on financial inclusion. More than 1.3 billion women don't have access to a bank account, and the gender gap in this area is about nine percentage points. Why is that? What puts banks or other financial tools out of reach for women? So thank you so much for having me here. I think it's a great conversation and a great question. And so if you think about it, then this is why the financial inclusion number is so interesting. A billion people around the world don't have basic identification. So things most, like driver's license. Well, they don't even have the number. That there's no there's no social security number, there's no unique ID number, right? So most of these excluded people are women. That's the basic building block to joining any system, whether it's banking or uh, commerce or anything else. So if you go back a step and ask the question of why aren't women, you know, transacting or why aren't they in the banked economy? Well, you have to start from the place of why don't they have ID? Mm-hmm. And then you can go from there. And I and I raise that because that's actually my entry point into this conversation because my mother was born in India without a birth certificate, so she didn't have ID. And they actually measured her and her sister's birthdays like by tying a knot in a rope. And they'd sort of say, you know, we think you were kind of born in a hot month, and so you're sure. And, you know, that's not unique. I mean, you, you know, the CEO of Chobani, he talks about his growth that way too. And so it's just um, this idea of ID, though, really speaks to the one of the reasons why uh, you you see this gap in the number of women who are banked. Uh, 
Why is it important or what are, what are the institutional barriers to that? Well, if you're operating in the informal economy, so if you're operating out of a system that is not regulated, not necessarily protected, you end up in a system that is controlled a lot by cash, a lot about um, your proximity to a person. So you're really trapped into this, this economy where the, your only ability to uh, move or to engage or grow as an entrepreneur or as a business person, is limited. Could you give us a sense of the financial inclusion landscape worldwide? Where are conditions the most challenging for women? The financial inclusion landscape worldwide is uh, is mostly measured, thank goodness, by uh, the World Bank, which is the lead economist sort of who started this idea of measuring financial inclusion is a woman named Leora Clapper. When she first started measuring what we thought was the number globally uh, was about 2.5 billion people completely excluded from the formal economy. But then as the, uh, I'll tell you, as people like Queen Maxima, who is the UN Secretary General's representative on financial inclusion, Christine Lagarde, who uh, at the time was obviously the head of the, the IMF, started noticing and sort of saying, you know, if like from Christine Lagarde's perspective, she said, if I can't regulate half of the, you know, this many people in the economy, then how do I know any of these regulations are actually going to be working? And so she did a formal call for countries to start formalizing their economies. And um, as part of that, this idea of financial inclusion became a standard for um, or an impact of actually getting a loan. And so that's the type of leadership that's been happening around this. So I would sort of say the landscape is such that you're seeing that policies are now coming together with technology and the the technological capabilities to bring down the cost of banking in such a way that allows more people into the economy, to the formal economy. So what Leora will tell us is that we moved from 2.5 billion when she first started the study to 2 billion to 1.7 billion in the most recent um, the most recent numbers. So you can look around the world and you'll see, uh, you know, where you have high rates of uh, digital, the gap between the digitization of economies, you'll also see high rates of the gap uh, between uh, women participating in the formal economy. So places like Asia have, the gap is is smaller than places like Africa? It's interesting. It's uh, there's because of the, techn- the 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 technology component and the access to technology. What we actually see is there's a correlation between ac- women's access to phones and mobile phones and their participation in the formal economy. Because now more and more people are using their mobile phones to bank or participate in the economy. So Asia, for example, um, when I talked about the number that went from two billion to one point seven billion, in large part that's because um, India instituted a system where they around the or across the country said everybody's got to get an ID, and oh, right, they yeah. three hundred million people um, I think were given a- accounts uh, in India through their program, um, which is fantastic and the numbers look good. But now what we have to do is make sure that there's actual usage of um, of those accounts. And that's where the conversation, I think, shifts from this idea of uh, access and the technology and then some of the work that we've been looking at around um, how do you work with women at scale. 
So staying on the topic of technology, um, you talked how it has changed the situation. Um, and certainly one th- application that comes to mind is M-Pesa, mm-hmm. the mobile money application that arose out in Kenya. What other new digital tools or successful programs are there that help eliminate the gender gap in financial inclusion? So I think there are a couple. The technology is the means, right? But the way that we're approaching it is around where are there women who are occupying big parts of the economy. So for us, it's farmers, factory workers, and finance. And so women, and maybe your uh, listeners don't know this, actually make up most of the farmers in the world, small shareholder farmers, small plots of land. These are mostly women. And so the technology that we created around the MasterCard Farmers Network allows women who um, have to stay on their farms or have to actually work the land, they don't have um, the time, energy, or frankly, the ability to leave their farms for days at end and go to a market to sell their produce. So the idea that we would connect a market maker um, who may be, you know, 10 kilometers away or 100 kilometers away to a set of farmers, small farmers, um, who can bid on produce or who can bid on prices. Um, And then the market maker will send somebody to get the produce based on who bids on the price. And so it sounds kind of easy and kind of, uh, I think, um, intuitive. But if you think about it, that's the way that you make change at scale. Think about that construct with other places too. So, you know, 80% of factory workers are, or garment workers are women. Most of these women are paid in cash. So if you're a factory worker, um, you're, you know, you're doing your hours and things like that. Um, It's very tough to get wage and age transparency when you're dealing in paper systems. And so um, we learned from some of the brands, you know, obviously the brands are trying to figure out how to bring transparency to this entire system that a lot of the workers in these factories were saying on their worker well-being programs, they're saying, we want financial, um, they said literacy, but what we said was it's literacy, but what they really want is financial access to their own money. And by paying them in cash, you're not providing them access to their own money because they walk out of that gate and there are a lot of people there waiting to take their the cash right out of their hands. So if there's a way to digitize that payroll, get them an account so that the money goes straight into account or goes onto some sort of their phone or a card or something, it puts the economic decision-making in her hands. There are also women in certain places that face laws and policies that constrain their mobility or even their ability to set up a bank account or even get a credit card. How mm-hmm. can we address this? Yeah, I think it's, you know, that's our that's our third area, which is finance. So farmers, factory workers, and finance. And so one of the things that um, we have been uh, acutely aware of and focused on is um, access to credit. You know, there are laws and policies in place that make it much tougher for for women to get access to capital. So women don't have, uh, when you're asked for collateral or a credit score or anything like that, women don't have a tractor to put up, 
you know, for collateral or they don't have uh, the traditional means, uh, house, whatever. They don't, it's not in their name. They don't, you know, have these things. As we've been working on the, um, you know, understanding that, it's, we've also been thinking about, well, how do you do proxies for credit worthiness? Because it's not that these women are less credit worthy than anybody. It's just that the, the way that we measure credit worthiness is, in a, is a way that doesn't really help them. So I'll give you an example. Working with, um, uh, with Unilever in Kenya, because um, you talked about Mpesa before. In Kenya, uh, women occupy much of the Unilever supply chain, the small shop owners. Many of these, uh, these small shop owners are women. And what we realized uh, was that these women were sell- buying Unilever products to stock their stores. And so we worked with Unilever to say, you know, can we look at your data? Because that data... Um, actually tells a story about their creditworthiness that banks aren't seeing because you see that they are buying and they're stocking their stores and then they're buying again, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly. And we started to use that um, that behavior as a proxy for credit score that we then took to our partner, in this case, Kenya Commercial Bank, to say, will you recognize this behavior as a proxy? And then will you give these women or these shop owners um, small loans and accounts so that they can start to build. Uh, you can see their buying and selling behavior in the bank, but what would, would it al- allow them to do is get a loan at a reasonable interest rate, which will then allow them to borrow so that they can stock a week's worth of supplies, not a day's worth of supply. And what we've seen, um, because now we're up to about 20,000 shop owners, is that on average, there's a 25% increase in the shop sales. This idea of turning credit worthiness upside down, that's what we're trying to figure out and trying to do. Because again, it's not that women are not credit worthy. It's just that the measurements of credit worthiness um, haven't accounted for their activity. We talked about financial services and how women can access them. I'd love to turn to impact. How has improved financial inclusion influence women in the workplace? Are there more women in the labor force, more female entrepreneurs? So I just came back from South Africa. That's a continent where more women than men are entrepreneurs. And the energy is completely different. We were um, uh, meeting with uh, a lot of women entrepreneurs when we were there. And again, I talked about the Unilever program and things like that. You know, when you work with women on economic empowerment, it can transform continent. Because what we do also know uh, is that women, when they become economically empowered, send their kids to school. And they save for a rainy day so that they can paint their house or they can prepare for the monsoon or they can, you know, and so... They invest in healthcare. They invest. I mean, it just, it's a completely different model when you empower women. And so... Uh, so in Africa, we found that the entrepreneurship, um, the energy around women entrepreneurs and their ability to uh, make a difference for their, they, they, they fully embrace it and they fully realize. The other one that I, that I think is really interesting to talk about, because I love always talking about Mandeshi Bank in, um, in India, it's another partner of ours. This woman, Chetna Sinha, created this idea of doorstep banking. 
And this is something, you know, again, if you're a woman, you're you're constantly thinking about the resilience. How do you work within the system and without the system to make things happen because you're focused on feeding your family? And they created this idea of doorstep banking because they realized that um, time uh, is the commodity for for women. And so if women are have to work out in the fields, they can't make the trip up to a bank, but they want to save. They didn't want a piggy bank in their house. Um, where anybody could access the money. And they said, we want a bank, just like anybody else. And uh, and Chetna created Mandeshi Bank as a way to actually go out to the women and um, and and serve them as customers. And her, the thing I learned from uh, Chetna is she says, don't make poor products for poor people. They know what they need, and women especially know what they need. They just need access, and they need you to do your job in serving them. You brought up Queen Maxima and Christine Lagarde Mm. as really identifying this need for including women in in the financial system. And in our conversation, we're talking about how, whether it's policies or societies or systems, look at women. And I wonder if it wasn't for women, would they ever see us? Hmm. Well, uh, I think that's a great question. But I have to, again, I kind of look at the numbers because if you, I mean, population aside, which we all know, we're more than 50% of the population. But in terms of buying decisions, women are making the buying decisions and they're also making the healthcare decisions. And they're also like, like I think 80% of all decisions, financial decisions are actually made by women. So would they see us is more about do we see each other? Because we're actually the majority and we're actually making the buying decisions. So I think it's as much about people like Queen Maxima, Christine Lagarde, and you and me, frankly, seeing each other as it is around um, they seeing us. And so, so yes, I guess the point is that, um, you know, we're, I think, what I'm so excited about is that, you know, we are using this technology. The technology is here now. And it's also in our hands. And so we have an ability to dis- use this distribution model in a way that I don't think we we had even a few short years ago. And so hopefully there are enough of us seeing each other and helping each other um, so that we can actually make change at scale. Shamita, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I think what gives me the most hope is that we are, I think the world is at an inflection point. And um, for as much uh, gloom and doom as we hear in the news and things like that, the the things that I see on the ground when I go visit um, place anywhere from you know Michigan to uh, Mumbai, uh, the power of women when they work with each other and when they identify with each other and when they lift them up, there is nothing more powerful than that. And this is what I'm seeing around the world is that women are actually, and look, I'm, you know, I'm not the the expert here, but I think that they're actually starting to identify and see each other. And they're not apologizing for helping each other. Um, I think in a way that in more developed economies, we've often, you know, heard. And so for me, the hope is that we're bringing public sector together with private sector, together with technology to work with women. And I think ultimately when we do that, we're going to get to a place of inclusive growth. And that's kind of all I'm focused on. Shamina, thank you. Thank you. 
That was Shamina Singh. She is the founder and president of the Center for Inclusive Growth, the philanthropic hub of MasterCard. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasia Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.